welcome to Counterpunch Radio. My name is Eric Dreitzer. Thanks so much for tuning in, coming back to the show. First-time listeners just finding the show, welcome aboard. Hope you enjoy it. As always, I'm just do a quick pitch for Counterpunch, Counterpunch Plus, our subscription section on the website. That's a great way to support the work that we do, the work that we've been doing for nearly 30 years. Lots of exclusive stuff over there. We have a great stable of authors and contributors giving all sorts of perspectives on a wide range of issues, international issues, economics, cultural stuff, all kinds of very good uh, information and analysis there. Please go to Counterpunch to the website, get yourself a subscription. And while you're supporting your favorite independent media outlets and your favorite people, you should also head over to democracyatwork.info. You should subscribe to the newsletter from Richard Wolf and the gang over there, all of the great work that they do. I mean, it's just, it's an endless stream of good stuff. I highly recommend it. Richard is back with us to talk about economic issues. The website, of course, RD Wolf, that's with two Fs, rdwolf.com. You could find all of his work there. Richard probably doesn't need this introduction, but I will do it anyway. Professor Emeritus from UMass Amherst, currently visiting Professor of International Affairs at the New School. Uh, the podcast and show Economic Update, which is syndicated and can be found all sorts of places. Of course, uh, just all of his good stuff. Richard, thanks for coming back and chatting. Oh, my pleasure, Eric. Thanks for inviting me. I am a big fan of all of your work and, of course, of the analysis. And right now, we seem to be on the cusp of a very important moment, maybe even a transitional moment in our economy in the United States and in the West broadly. So everybody's talking about it. Richard, let's start with inflation. Inflation is the watchword. It's what everybody's writing about. Think pieces every single day. Tell us a little bit about inflation from your perspective. What's driving it? How should we understand it? Well, you know, the irony is that inflation is like it's one of those topics in economics about which people talk, but which they never think about and which is not very well taught in our schools either. So, you know, forgive me, but I want to start at the very basics. And inflation simply means a general rise in prices. No magic, no complication. It just means not every price rises and not that they all rise the same, but that in general, there's a marked rising of prices over time. So, for example, the United States government tells us now that we are currently at an inflation rate of about eight and a half, nine percent, which is what it's been over the last year or so. And it's probably going to get worse before it gets better. What that means, very simply, is in order to be able to buy the exact same bundle of goods you afforded a year ago, you would now need 85 to 9% more money to pay the higher prices to get that same bundle. So, for example, if your wage or salary hasn't gone up by 85 to 9% from last year, you're falling behind. You will not be able with, for example, your 3% or your 5% or your 7% increase um, in income, if you've had any increase, it will still not be enough to buy what you could afford a year ago. I might mention that the current rate of wage rising is about half that, 4 4.5%, which means, to be real simple, that the working class of the United States is getting the shaft. It is being hurt. If your uh, wage didn't go up, if your wage went up by as much as 5 or 6%, you're still 
falling behind. All right, keep that in mind. Now, the simple analytics. Who raises prices in the United States? The answer, employers. If you're an employee, that's not your job. It's not written anywhere in your job description that you participate in determining the price of whatever goods or services you help to produce. You get a wage, you know what it is, it's in your envelope every Friday, etc., etc. You don't set prices. Employers do. Employers are less than 1% of the people of this country. They're the ones who set the prices. They're the ones who are raising the prices. They're the ones who literally cause the inflation. We all pay the higher prices at the supermarket, the department store, wherever we go. They set them 1%. We pay them 99%. Don't ever forget that because it'll help you navigate lots of airy language that is more meant to disguise all of that than to face it. All right, next step. Why would employers raise prices uh, these last uh, 12 months way much more than they did in the last, say, 20 years, right? Average uh, inflation rate over the first 20 years of this century was somewhere in the neighborhood of 1% to 2%. Suddenly, we're seeing them going up 85 9%. What's going on? Why would the 1% of employers suddenly be raising prices? Now, here's the answer, which already everybody knows, but it kind of gets lost in all the verbiage. Employers are in the business of making money. We know that. They tell us that. It's no secret. If you go to business school, you get an MBA, a Master of Business Administration, And the courses teach you that every business decision you face, you've got to connect what your options are to what will boost your profits, what will get you to be a bigger company, your market share, and all of that. So we know the answer. Why did they raise prices? Because the answer is the same for why they do anything. It's profitable to do that. If we can get away with it, in other words, if people will still buy the stuff, obviously we will not raise prices if we lose the customer, because that's not that's not good for profits. You only do it if it is profitable. If the inflation stays for the last year, as we know it has, and if it's predicted to go up more, which it is, well, then we know that the employers got what they were looking for higher profits from the higher prices, thereby justifying their decision. Now the last step. Why are employers interested in raising profits? Well, we kind of know that, but why particularly now? And then we'll get to the, that's it. That's the answer. Here we go. Over the last two years, a huge portion of America's businesses lost money. Not only did they not make money, they weren't profitable. If you were a restaurant, you were closed. If you were a factory, part of the time your workers were sick and they were out, or your bosses were sick, or a hundred different things happened because, you know, we had a really rough time 2020 and 2021. We had a combination of the worst 
public health failure of our country, COVID, and a crash, second worst economic crash in our history, beaten only by the 1930s Great Depression. And we had them at the same time. We've never been in that kind of a situation. So these businesses lost, here we go now, two years of profits. They want to make up the hard two years they just got through. And I'm not even talking about the businesses that disappeared and will never come back. I'm talking about those that survived. They want to recoup their losses. And here we go now. This may be unsettling for folks, but this is how capitalism works. The fastest way for an employer to make more profits is to jack up the prices of whatever that employer sells. It's quick, it's easy, and it boy, does it deliver. All you have to make sure of is that there's enough purchasing power out there so that people will grumble and mumble, but they'll shell out the money. And since our government, worried about the collapse of our economy for the last 20 years, has been shelling out more money and creating it and pumping it into the economy than we've ever seen in peacetime history in this country, there's no shortage of money out there. And when you have the money available and you have the businesses gung-ho to raise the prices, you get the inflation today. Don't be fooled. It isn't the war in Ukraine. It isn't this mysterious nonsense called supply chain disruptions. This is a way for businesses to do what they've always had to do. Employers know that if the buyer is aware that you're jacking up the price to make more profit, that may risk upsetting your buyer, turning him off, alienating him. So it's really important when you're jacking prices up the way they are now to blame somebody else. Blame COVID. Blame Russia. Blame, you know, who can, disruptions, you know, Arabs, uh, you know, whatever you can think of, muddy the water so that the anger of people having to pay more doesn't come on you just because it kind of auto because you did it. <laughs> can you, um, since you have so much uh, experience in this field over decades, can you compare for us, especially those of us who didn't live through it, what this period we're going through now is like as compared to the 1970s when the last time inflation really began to dominate the economic discussion? Uh, what are some of the differences? What are some of the similarities? And how do we understand our current situation with its historic analogs? That's a great question. I'm glad you asked. Uh, yes, we had a terrible inflation. Uh, by the way, the inflation in those days was caused, people might be interested, mostly by uh, the war in Vietnam. And here's what I mean. That was a long and difficult war lasting, as many of you know, uh, from the latter part of the 1960s into the early 70s. Uh, and that war presented enormous costs Vietnam is 10,000 miles away. So if you're going to fight a war over there, which is what we did, you have to move all your equipment, all your soldiers, all your support, you know, 10,000 miles back. And it's an immense supply chain problem. 
uh, very, very expensive. And the presidents at that time, starting with Kennedy and then Johnson and so on and Nixon, the presidents knew that the war was not popular in the United States. And it would become a lot less popular, and it wasn't very popular to begin with, but it would become a lot less popular if you went to the American people and you said, not only are we sending our young men and women 10,000 miles away to a country you couldn't even find on a map, and we're a very large country and Vietnam is a very poor little country, but you're going to have to pay for it. It's going to cost you $5,000 a year in extra taxes to raise the money to fund the war. They knew that with that, the war would be over because in the streets would be all the taxpayers, not just the young people protesting who didn't want to get drafted. So it was decided to pay for the war, not by taxing people, but by borrowing. See, it turns out rich people are very willing to lend to the government instead of paying taxes. That's a no-brainer. You pay taxes, the money's gone, the government takes it and does what it will. If the government borrows, they give you back the money after a few years, plus they give you interest each year while you wait to get the money paid back. If you're choosing between lending to the government and being taxed by the government, the rich people always know which way to go. So the rich people lent the money, the government turned that into the basis for printing more money, and we had a flood of money. And we didn't increase output because we were fighting a war. So you had that classic story, too much money chasing too few goods. And the inflation uh, went crazy. All right. Now we get to the point where it becomes the kind of story it is today. Everybody's worried about it. Businesses are screaming. Working people are screaming. The president happens to be a conservative Republican, Richard Nixon. So he goes on television and radio on the 15th of August. If anyone wants to pursue it, I'm sure you can find newsreel footage. Um, he goes on radio and television and he makes an amazing speech. He says, everybody hates the inflation and they're right. And I'm the president and I'm going to stop it because that's what everyone wants me to do. And I'll do it. Here's what we're going to do. Announces a conservative re Republican. As of tomorrow morning, 8 o'clock, any enterprise, any employer who raises the price of whatever it is he or she sells, here's what I want you to know. We will come for you, we will arrest you, and we'll throw you in jail. He let that sink in. 30 seconds later, he says, if you're a worker or a union, and you do that to press up your wages, the same will happen to you. In other words, I'm declaring, and this was the name of the policy, a price wage freeze. It's going to last for the next 90 days, and that's how we're going to stop inflation. So here's what happened. The inflation stopped on a dime. I want everyone to understand this policy worked. It was a conservative president who imposed it. It worked so well, it was extended uh, several more months beyond the original 90 days. Did this policy have problems? Yes. Any policy dealing with inflation 
has its problems. For example, the current plan of this government, supported by the Republicans, is to raise interest rates by the Federal Reserve. That's going to have problems. Everyone with a credit card is going to be paying more this month than they did last month, even if they didn't use the credit card more because the interest rate on your outstanding balance has been raised, and that's going to cost you more money. So it has its problems. Here's the remarkable thing, though, for your listeners and for the people of CounterPunch. We're not discussing the options of how to deal with an inflation. We have a government, Democrats and Republicans, because on these kinds of issues, you don't, I had no sense of a difference between them. Uh, Mr. Biden reappointed Mr. Powell. Mr. Powell is the head of the Federal, uh, Federal Reserve. He, and Mr. Biden has said he's leaving it to Mr. Powell. Okay, I mean, uh, what do we have new parties for? You are the same guys. You're going to raise interest rates. And you're acting as if that's the only policy in the world. It isn't. It never was. Inflations have been a problem for hundreds, if not thousands of years. We have a long history of alternative ways. Some work better, some work not so well. There ought to be a discussion because, by the way, there are more options, not just a price wage freeze versus interest rates. There are others, an honest government, an honest government that even pretended to be democratic would lay these options in front of people so we could have a national discussion and then reach some sort of democratic decision which of these different policies we want to use or what mixture of none of that is happening. If you wanted an example of a government disconnected from the mass of its people, nothing would be clearer than watching the absurd debate among Republicans and Democrats, which only circulate about how much we raise the interest rates, how soon we raise the interest rates, and what series of steps do we raise, as if that were the only thing. It's like I'm saying to you, we're going to have a conversation with you about dinner, all right? You can have one hot dog, or you can have one and a half hot dogs, or you can have a hot I might heat the hot dog a little more. After a while, you'd stop me and say, that's it, Grandma? Only hot dogs? That's all there is? And Grandma would then have to face the reality that she's cut you out of all the other options in the world that you could have for dinner, because for whatever reason, she wants that one. And I'll give you now the reason. Raising interest rates does not interfere directly in any business. And that's what our government is for, serving business. So does it hurt you with your credit card? You bet. Does it mean that buying a used or new car will cost you more monthly payments with a higher interest rate? You bet. Does it mean it prices you out of buying your own home? You bet. Does it mean for students even more payments to get their college degree? You bet. So are there victims of it? You bet. Are there alternatives to it? You bet. But we have a society that refuses to honestly deal with its people. It is, it is misgovernment on a scale that I must tell you is really causes economists of many different persuasions to shake their heads in, in, a, in disgust. 
Let's go a little bit deeper on that issue, because one of the interesting tensions seems to be in, in both in discussing this and just generally seems to be between, well, which is worse for workers? On the one hand, you have inflation, which I think is obviously a problem for any working class person. On the other hand, if you want to address inflation by hiking the interest rates, you're hurting, as you said, prospective home buyers. What about workers in general? What does this do to unemployment? They keep trumpeting these great unemployment numbers. We've gotten unemployment down. We've gotten unemployment down. All of a sudden, now you hike the interest rate. What happens to the workers? Well, Everybody who's ever studied this knows, and I could give you endless quotes from right wing, left wing, it doesn't really matter. If you raise interest rates a lot, which in a sense we already have, and quickly, which in a sense we already have, with more coming. Uh, there's another one scheduled in July, you know, which is what, three days from now, we begin the month of July. Uh, the reality is that you are going to have unemployment. Because higher interest rate, look, let me tell you just how bad it is. Starting in the year 2000, we've had a series of crashes of our capitalist system. We don't give it much attention, but we ought to. In the spring of 2000, we had the so-called dot-com crash, right? In the autumn of 2008 and into 2009, we had what has come to be called the Great Recession, or sometimes the subprime mortgage crash. And now in 2020, we had the COVID crash. Well, it's very nice to give each crash its own name, as if they were different. But it's a collapse of the same capitalist system over and over again. So what the federal government did, it was terrified that a collapse of the stock market, which happened in each of those three, would overflow the stock market and become a Great Depression like we had in the 1930s. Let's remember 1933, the unemployment rate in the United States, 25%, which meant every single family in the country had somebody unemployed who therefore had to be taken care of by the rest of the family because we didn't have unemployment compensation until well into the Depression. Okay. Over the last 20 years, what the government did to try to prevent these crashes from becoming depressions was to drop interest rates to next to nothing. Literally, interest rates, as everyone watching this program, listening, knows, were down next to zero. For periods of time, they were negative. The government paid you to borrow from the government. You know, crazy stuff. Well, here's what happened. No surprise. Every employer, every business in America that had a problem, it produced something that nobody bought. Uh, its workers would demand higher wages. Its technology would break down or wouldn't be the right. Whatever problem a business had, the quickest, easiest, and cheapest solution was to go to the government and borrow all the money it was trying to pump into the economy at virtually no interest. I mean, this is a no-brainer. The result is, as I'm speaking to you, that the level of debt of American companies is higher than it has ever been in the history of the United States. We can't have rising interest rates because these companies will then have to fork over money interest on their debt that they don't have. 
By the way, we have a name in economics for them on our Wall Street. They're called zombie corporations. They're corporations whose profits are not sufficient to pay the interest on their already accumulated debt. You raise that interest and they're going belly up. A week ago, Revlon used to be the biggest cosmetic company in the world, declared bankruptcy. It's a zombie corporation, has been for years, but with rising interest rates, they threw in the towel, they're gone. Okay, that's where we are. You raise interest rates, companies are going to be closing left and right, and that's going to lose large numbers of people their job. And let me, let me be a human being for a minute, just like everybody else. We've just put the American people through a COVID mismanagement costing over a million lives in this country. We've had the second worst crash of our capitalist economy in our history at the same time. No sooner were those two difficult years over than we smacked our working class with an inflation and we got the good news for them that by this time next year, you're going to have a recession. You know, you can't do that. When you do that to a working class, you get weird pathological responses from people. They get freaky. They begin to remember and redesign white supremacy. And they think they're going to protect themselves against the collapsing capitalism if they have three guns on the rack at the back of their pickup truck. Or they're going to recreate some myth mythological past by taking away the right to abortion that has been won over the years when every other country in the world is going in the other direction. We are watching the social fabric rip and tear. I mean, the Republican convention in the state of Texas last week has a plank, I mean, issued a, a statement of their principles. They reserve the right to secede. In Scotland right now, a vote is being prepared for the Scot people to withdraw from the United Kingdom. You know, on and on. We are seeing every assumption break down in society and I would argue that the core problem here is you cannot tell a working class you live in the best country in the world and it's upward and onward and our best years are ahead. of You can't keep doing that while you beat them over the head with economic difficulty. That is going to blow up on you and I think we're living through it. And what about the argument that some of the inflation has been uh, driven by these, uh, you know, what the right wing likes to call, you know, giveaways to people during COVID? Oh, a couple hundred bucks here and there. It's driven the entire economy into this, you know, the inflation into the stratosphere. There's all kinds of explanations, but I would like you to just take a moment to address, you know, some of those kinds of arguments. And they're not only from the right wing. Liberals make many of these same arguments as well. So can you speak to some of those, um, you know, counter arguments or fake counter arguments? arguments or whatever you want to call them? Well, uh, let me be mean for a moment because this really are playing with people's lives. That argument is, is basically ignorant or stupid. And I can explain it very simply. Let's suppose that the store owners across America and the employers who provide them with what they sell in their stores. Suppose they were aware that suddenly there's a great new demand for goods and services. Maybe because 
uh, an extra $300 a week has been given to unemployed people struggling with COVID or whatever. It doesn't matter. There's more demand. More people have money in their pocket and they're going to come to your store and they have the money to spend. Let's remember the storekeeper, the employer, knowing what's going on, has a choice to make. Choice number one, oh, I can jack up my price because they have the money to spend. Or choice number two, I won't raise my price. I will order more goods because I can sell more because the people have more money. The fact that the people have more money doesn't explain the increase in prices. That has to be explained by the profit-driven decision of the seller of the item. Otherwise, they could respond to greater demand with greater production. Here's the irony. You have to follow the money. You have to see if there's more money pumped in, where is it going? For the first 20 years of this century we're living in, the government pumped vast amounts of money into the economy. We saw no inflation. So obviously, money is not a sufficient explanation for an inflation because we pumped more money in the first 20 years than we've ever done before, and our inflation rate was less than it normally was. Okay, so number one. Number two, the reason that happened is that the money didn't go into the regular production economy, you know, of goods and services. It went into the stock market because the people who got their hands on the loans from the government are big banks and they look to see where the profit is greatest. And buying shares and selling them a few weeks or months later for a higher price, thereby realizing a capital gain was the game in town. And all the new money, I'm exaggerating slightly, but only to make the point, most of the new money went into the stock market where there wasn't inflation, where the last 20 years have been some of the best years the stock market has ever seen, thanks to the government pumping money in there. Only now that the prices in the stock market have gone so high that the people who play in the stock market have begun to understand it's no longer a question of whether. It's only a question of when the bubble will burst, when these overpriced shares will suddenly come down. And that means the advice you're giving to your rich people, get your money out of there. You don't want to be in the market when it crashes. By the way, the last several months, it has been crashing and people have been hurt. So now the money can't go into the stock market. Now the money is coming into buying land and buildings and, and hard assets, they're called. And so the price goes up for them. But it's not because the money is there. It's because the people who own and operate enterprises that sell things see it as a golden opportunity to raise prices. But they never want to accept the responsibility. This is childish. You want the credit if the economy is going well, but the minute that your behavior produces an economy going badly, you're finding some scapegoat to blame. Shame on them is really the honest response.
Before we run out of time, I want to quickly continue that line of questioning and ask you a little bit about real estate, because you just mentioned inflation. And we have seen over, well, a number of years now that, uh, you know, assets, real estate assets, the price of homes, this and that has been going up, 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 up. So on the one hand, home ownership in the United States, which is historically the primary path towards wealth building for working people. Working people don't generally, you know, speculate in the stock market in the way that wealthy people do. They buy homes, they, you know, and, and so and so forth. So on the one hand, we've seen an inflation in real estate, you know, values, the value of homes, etc., which has put first-time home buyers in a very difficult position as they compete with you know banks and other speculators simultaneously now you're going to see some of that inflation reversing those prices coming a little bit back down but oh by the way we're going to slap you with higher interest rates so you still can't buy a home so can you talk a little bit about the predicament of uh working people younger people people of my generation under 50 but over 30 you know who are looking to begin to enter into that home ownership class as it were well you know you have the bad luck obviously not your fault but the bad luck that your parents decided to to make you at a time when you're coming into an economy that is basically throwing you under the bus I mean, it comes directly out of what we were just talking about. When the wealth stopped being in the stock market because it became too overpriced, the money began to look where else can we go? The big profit engine of the stock market is now too overpriced. So here's what they did. The wealthy individual families took money out of the stock market and used it either to buy a country home or to expand their home or to build a McMansion or any one of those things that you can see in all the fancy parts of every of every town, number one. Number two, the very same companies that played the stock market began to move capital out of stocks into real estate. When, when people talk to you about um, corporations investing in housing, that's a fancy way of saying the big players, under, look, the largest owner of apartments in Berlin, Germany, is Blackstone, the same company that does that here in New York City or anywhere else in the country. That's become an enormous outlet for capital, huge billions, trillions, moving in, buying single family homes and converting them into rental properties so that they're like a stock. They generate of flow between rich people. By the way, and if you talk to a builder, they'll tell you the only houses where we can make money building are houses for the rich. That That's why you see the big towers. That's why you see the fancy condos. They have the money more than ever. The vast mass of the Americans are pinched more than ever. And the inflation. So there's no point in building houses for your generation. You in this economic system, you're being told by the economy, you don't have the money to make us pay any attention to you. And we're not going to. We are going to go overseas. We're going to build fancy houses over there if they can pay for them. And we will build the cities to be playgrounds of the rich. San Francisco, New York, they already are that and becoming more like that every single day. We're buying cheap housing 
and reconverting it into housing for rich people, combining three apartments that three families had into a luxury for one family with no children, etc., etc. You're watching all of the complex adjustments in a society that over the last 40 years has redistributed wealth from the bottom and the middle to a tiny number of people, 10%, no more, at the top. And everything is being adjusted to serve where the money is, because that's how capitalism works. You know, a market is an institution. If there's scarcity of anything in a market, the competing buyers bid up the price. Sooner or later, as the price goes up, people at the bottom can't afford it anymore. So that's a way of deciding who gets and who doesn't. Markets distribute scarcity to the richest people in the market. By the way, that violates the ethics and morality of every major religion on this planet, which would never countenance the following story, which is now America. As the price of milk goes up, rich people will continue to buy the milk they want to feed to their cat. And poor people will have to tell their little children, you can't get any milk because it's being bid up by the people who feed it instead to the cat. If your morality can handle that, if your morality thinks markets are God's gift to the human race, then you have become a supporter of a system whose inequality and non-democracy are overwhelming. Uh, one last thing I, I have to ask you about, um, you know, the 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 revolution was supposed to come and it was supposed to be decentralized and on the blockchain and uh, the dollar was going to go the way of the dodo and crypto was going to be our glorious utopian future. And here we are in 2022 and crypto has collapsed and proven itself to be little more than just another empty speculative tool. Can you talk a little bit about crypto, crypto collapse and what it means, if anything? Yes. I, you know, I, I take no pride and no satisfaction from saying to you that I told people that I've been asked about crypto for years and I have said, look, you never know when these kinds of scams will break. So for a while it can go up. All it needs is people who are credulous like you to go in there and buy it and, and experience the joy of it going up in five weeks and doubling or whatever. And that all of that happened to Bitcoin and, and all of the others. Um, but it is what it is and what it always has been. You don't escape a system by a technical glitch. You know, you don't. The fact that there's blockchain, the fact that there's no government immediately involved doesn't free you from the capitalist system. The reason the government does the things you don't like is because it's a government shaped and controlled by a system. And your cryptocurrencies are not immune to any of that. And so, yeah, for a while they'll do better. That's not unusual. But you're just waiting for the bruise. And let me be real clear. I don't know if you've made this clear to your audience. November 10th of last year, Bitcoin was worth uh, just shy of $70,000. As I'm talking to you, Bitcoin is worth $20,000, roughly $20,000. All right. That collapse is way worse than the stock market. That collapse is way worse 
worse than almost any other asset you could have purchased back in, in November of last year. That doesn't prove anything, but it sure undercuts the notion that if I do this crypto, I'm, in, I'm, I'm safe. I've escaped the uncertainties, the manipulations, the crookedness, the injustice, the inequality of all the players in the market. You haven't escaped that. Either you change the system or you will suffer its ways of existing. That's, I mean, I'm in favor of change, but I do know enough to know that anyone who offers you a scam, offers you something too good to be true, then there's a joke on Wall Street. If it sounds too good to be true, it probably isn't true. And that was always true. Whether you go back to the 18th century and the famous explosion of betting on the uh, Dutch tulip industry, all the way to the present with, with crypto. It's one, you know, Florida real estate was that once before, um, atomic energy for a while. Railroads played that role. You don't do that. There is no escape. That's what it means to be part of a system. That's why we study capitalism as a system, because it has its way of ruling and running and Either you face and change it, or you will be governed by it. Last thing I want to ask you, Richard, um, we have a crisis globally, of course, the Russia-Ukraine war, all of the other issues that are happening. A lot of people are, are fond of talking about the end of dollar hegemony, the global capitalist system in the U.S. dollar as reserve currency, and the Russians are moving us into a future away from the dollar, this and that. I'm very much a skeptic of a lot of that. I'm skeptical for a lot of reasons, but I know I'm asking a big question in a small amount of time, but to the extent that you can, what role do you think the dollar has in in the immediate future as we see these monumental shifts globally, Russia, China, etc. Yes, I share your skepticism up to a point. I think the direction of change is unquestionably away from the dollar. That is, the dollar cannot hold on to its global position for the simple reason that it is supported and maintained by the United States. And the United States' position in the world is on a continuous downward trend. We don't account for anything like the share of global production or world trade or any of the measures of your economic importance. Let me just give you one to drive it home. The biggest push to replace the dollar is now coming not from the Europeans who could do it, but from something called BRICS. Uh, that's a, a group of, of nations, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, and South Africa. They get together, they have been for years, and they're working on an alternative currency system and payment system. That process, which was already going on and gathering force, has now been accelerated by the sanctions against Russia because they have forced the issue. And if the United States thought that they are the big power that they once were and that everybody would side with the United States, they have been rudely awakened. And most of the American people have just not been told. The overwhelming majority of the countries in the world are not on the side of the United States in this struggle with Russia over Ukraine. They're either neutral or they're actively supporting the Russians. 
And that's the majority of the world's people, not just the majority of the world's countries. And they are all in favor of having more than the U.S. dominate the world economy. So they're going in that direction. How quickly they'll get there is is really the only question. And I agree with you there. Uh, that's not happening immediately. That's a long and well-developed system that's been there for 75 years, basically, since the end of World War II. And so that's going to, you know, that's a lot of work to change that. But it's getting closer, and we may be surprised. Let me leave you with a statistic to keep things in perspective. The GDP, you know, that's that number we use in economics, gross domestic product, total output of goods and services per year in any country. The most recent year in Russia, the GDP is $1.5 trillion. The most recent year, last year in the United States, the GDP is $21 trillion. Keep an idea on the relative sizes of these two economies. You're not talking an equal fight. You're talking about a $21 trillion economic powerhouse against a very small, puny country economically by comparison. The, the GDP of China is $15 trillion, way more than Russia, and catching up each day with the United States, likely to be about the same as the U.S. by the end of this decade. That's what's changing the world. All the rest is a detail. We will leave it there. Richard Wolf has been my guest. As always, thank you to Richard for coming on the show. rdwolf.com is the website. Democracyatwork.info is the other. Economic Update is the show. Uh, and of course, if you're lucky enough to be in New York, you should uh, go and find him at the New School, where he's a visiting professor of international affairs. Richard Wolf, as always, a pleasure having you on Counterpunch. Thank you so much. And Eric, thank you. And not only thank you for inviting me, but thank you for having a program that puts this kind of material out there for people to, to engage with. It's a real service. Much appreciated. Thank you so much, Richard. Thank you, as always, listeners. And uh, we will chat again next time.